I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer, audio editor, and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we shine a light on critical social justice issues through a unique blend of independent journalism and hip-hop. Welcome to a very special episode in partnership with Color of Change, the nation's largest online racial justice organization, a nonprofit dedicated to designing and executing powerful, impactful campaigns and strategies aimed at ending practices that unfairly hold black people back and championing solutions that move us all forward. Color of Change helps people respond effectively to injustice in the world around us. As a national online force driven by more than 7 million members, it moves decision makers and corporations and government to create a more human and less hostile world for black people in America. And we value and share that mission and are proud to partner with Color of Change in achieving these goals. This special collaboration highlights several key tenets of this summer's mass rebellions sparked by the brutal murder of unarmed African-American George Floyd by a white Minneapolis police officer when millions across the country and world took to the streets demanding change, fervently fighting for the truth that black lives matter. While such public outrage against racism, inequality, and systemic oppression is nothing new in America, a nation literally built on the backs of brutalized black slaves, Organizers note several distinctions between these uprisings and those of the past. They were more diverse and all-encompassing and resulted in some immediate redress. At the very least, they forced the dire need for racial equality and police reform back into the national conversation. But what will their ultimate impact be? This episode reflects on the long, ongoing struggle for justice, the rigorous road ahead, and the enduring hope for everlasting victory. Explaining the significance of these uprisings for us, as well as obstacles and opportunities, is Color of Change's president, Rashad Robinson, its vice president and chief of campaigns, Arisha Hatch, black trans organizer, Olushi Omielga, co-founder of the Minneapolis-based nonprofit Black Visions, and Alex Vitali, author, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College, and coordinator of its policing and social justice project. And back rocking with us is our incredible musical guest, hip-hop maestro, and our artist in residence, Silent Night. All right, y'all, here it is. This is America's Reckoning. Is a change gonna come? This morning, the FBI is looking into the death of a black man after he was stopped by police in Minneapolis. The attempted arrest was caught on camera, and we need to warn you here that it's very difficult to watch. The video of last night's confrontation shows a white police officer with his knee pinning down the neck of the suspect. And you can clearly hear the man saying, I can't breathe several times. I can't breathe. Our national lead right now, moments ago, the chief of police in Minneapolis announced that he had fired four police officers involved in the arrest and subsequent death of a black man in police custody. George Floyd repeatedly told the officers that he could not breathe breathe. after an officer knelt on his neck, neck, pinning him to the ground during an arrest. Loved ones of Breonna Taylor grieving and outraged. The 26-year-old Louisville first responder shot eight times and killed by police. Just to know that she 
um, die like that in the comfort of her own home. On March 13th, before 1 a.m., Louisville police say three officers executed, executed a search warrant at Taylor's apartment. A black family in Georgia pressed today for authorities to act after the shooting death of their son. Ahmaud Arbery was killed after two men, white men, chased him. White men chased him. The uprisings that started just after Memorial Day in relation to the murder of George Floyd have definitely signaled a transformative moment in this country. Millions of folks took to the streets for days and weeks trying to keep the story alive, trying to ask for change. We saw in this particular instance, which is different from what we saw back in 2015 when uprisings started to happen around Ferguson and Eric Gardner, we saw prosecutors making charges. We saw police departments firing different officers. And so this certainly represents a level of progress in terms of accountability for the local criminal justice system in terms of police violence. We also saw corporations from across the globe go to their Instagram profiles and Twitter profiles and post Black Lives Matter. And as I speak to older activists that have been doing this work, for much longer than I have, for decades and decades, trying to improve the world for Black people. They view it as a very critical tipping point moment to have so many folks speaking out. Breaking news overnight. We're talking about the protest and the chaos in the streets from Minneapolis to Los Angeles. The anger erupting across the country over the death of George Floyd while in police custody. In many ways, what we're dealing with and what we're seeing both reflects the time of the year the protests were happening inside of the summer, inside of this moment that really did follow uh, white men with guns showing up to capitals around the country demanding basically black and brown people get back to work and essential services open back up. And so we're seeing people sort of take to the streets because they are watching with their own eyes the city of Minneapolis um, sort of give us a story that was the most to make us think that we didn't see what we saw on that video, right? You watch that sort of county level district attorney sort of start to do the things um, that have happened with other cases. And because an unprecedented amount of eyes were looking at screens at that time, people really saw that video. What's different than a lot of other videos is that cop looked into the camera. He had his glasses sitting on his head. He looked very unbothered and unconcerned about the camera that was even facing him. According to the criminal complaint, Chauvin had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds in total. Two minutes and 53 seconds of this was after Mr. Floyd was non-responsive. Almost three minutes after he was unconscious, they still kept the knee on his neck and still kept their knees on his back. And it, I think for a lot of people, the sort of what about or what ifs went out the window. And what you ended up with was uprisings um, that looked very different from a diversity standpoint than uprisings we've seen before. We saw a lot more people taking to the streets as school's not happening, as work is not happening, as a lot of things are not happening. And people coming to terms with this sort of idea that justice was supposed to be served 
and people coming to sort of real reckoning around all of the barriers to actually get justice if the victim is Black. When we look back at the protests, the uprisings, the riots of the 1960s, we know that police were often a trigger for these, but no one today understands that as a movement just about policing or police abuse. We understand that policing was a trigger, was an issue. Those who remember 1967 as the summer of love may have forgotten what happened that year in cities like Newark, New Jersey. We will not tolerate violence. We're going to crush violence in this city. For nearly a week, residents clashed with police after a cab driver named John Smith was beaten by officers of the 4th Precinct. They started dragging me through the streets, and this evidently incensed the uh, people of the community. But this was about a broader civil rights, racial liberation movement. I think we have to use the same analysis today, right? That policing has been a trigger and is an ongoing concern. Good evening, I'm Judy Woodruff. Welcome to this PBS NewsHour special, Race Matters, America in Crisis. The death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minnesota has ignited outrage across the world and once again exposed the deep wounds of racism here in the U.S. But the problems of racial inequality in the United States are not limited to the functioning of the criminal justice system. And that's why the term Black Lives Matter is not just about police killings. Black lives need to matter in the way we deliver education, housing, employment, health and social services. This is a problem across the board. And I think these protests, while the overt focus has obviously been on policing, I think there's a lot of clarity on the streets and in communities that racial inequality is not just some story about the history of slavery. This is an ongoing problem. We gotta tell the truth and stop lying. All of these white voices oversee my black voice any day. So until the moment come where we can talk to your parents and your parents know that black lives do matter until that come a factor in the white heights of household. Let me tell y'all, and I don't mean no disrespect, we love all you all for coming out and standing and being a part of it. But guess what? In the morning, we still wake up black and we still wake up with a police. A one-time thing. We cannot continue to allow the people to oppress African-American community. They don't invest in us. They don't show us the resources. You are convincing, not me. I can't talk to your parents. I can't talk to your grandparents. At some point, you gotta be the voice for the black people in your household. And it has to start today. It was nine minutes that officer set his knee on George's neck. You think they gave a three officers, they still walk in the street, still walking today. It's time for us to put aside all of these things that's going on and to love on each other and to show each other. I won't let you fall and don't let me fall. As long as I got you, you got me. And we gotta 
All we got is us, no justice, peace, sleep, but days off No cakewalks, no stars, bars, or fake laws Snake oils, kumbayas, stage songs No A-Rod in this friendly game of baseball Snake guys set it off, singing they had one when looking at the front door But your partner is your main source, same cloth, thin blue Same story, same issue, Pucks and Tony Phil, film debut Deja vu, flashbacks of statin' after the chanting We were standing in the wind holding a candle If that's not an example of how fragile and how few I don't know what is of justice can be real, but I believe it can indeed. Thought, prayer, and action. Sure as the sun rises, sure as black lives matter. A fact that some would rather shout over the year. So show the shoulder we hear and running over the fear. Uh-uh-uh. I argue that the first police force that meets the definition of a modern police force is actually the Charleston City Watch and Guard, which is created in the late 1700s. But the law that they're enforcing is the law of slavery. They're professional, 24-hour, civilian, uniformed law enforcement officers, but they're managing what is a huge mobile slave population. And of course, the U.S. had its own colonial policing in, in the form of things like the Texas Rangers and other Western police forces, whose primary early mission was to drive out and exterminate indigenous populations, to suppress workers' movements, to drive out Spanish and Mexican landholders to make way for white settlement. So today, you know, we don't have colonialism and slavery in this 19th century sense. What we have is a kind of neoliberal austerity politics. This past week's protests have also reignited demands about tackling deep inequality in America. African-Americans face staggering gaps in wealth, income, in education, housing, and health care. Gaps that have been laid bare and made worse by the coronavirus pandemic. We built this economy that has no middle class. We have high finance, we have design, corporate headquarters, support for that legal support, you know, very high skilled, high paying jobs at the top. And then we have a massive service class that's that's underpaid, economically unsecure. And then below that, a whole strata of people who have no real access to the formal economy at all. Government has actually made this problem worse by pushing wealth up the economic ladder through tax breaks, deregulation, and austerity, the cutting back of social services to pay for all this. We want to give you, the American people, a giant tax cut for Christmas. Christmas, a time for giving. And American companies are set to get a rather large present this year. The tax that they pay government is set to be reduced from 35% to 21%. Big savings. What does that mean? That means that the problems of the 21st century are mass homelessness, mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, failed schools, family breakdown, mass participation in black markets of drugs and sex work and stolen goods. And what is policing? Policing is the tool that we've decided to use to manage precisely those problems that are the result of these economic arrangements and the state's divestment from social services. And by using police, we put a lid on those social problems to enough of a degree that that system of 
producing massive inequality, right? The greatest levels of inequality in the country's history is facilitated by having police keep a lid on all those problems for us, not solving any of them, just keeping a lid on them. Last year, the events in Ferguson and New York exposed a deep-rooted frustration in many communities of color uh, around the need for fair uh, and just law enforcement. On the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, outrage and anger. No Protesters of different ages and races demanding answers in the shooting death of 18-year-old Michael Brown at the hands of a policeman. Angry crowds tonight in the streets of New York, protesting yet another controversial grand jury decision. Adding a new chant to the growing chorus of civil discontent across the country. Now responding to the white police officer seen here, not facing charges for holding down an unarmed black man, Eric Garner, in an apparent chokehold that is said to have eventually killed him. After the police killings of Eric Garner and Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and, and so many others five, six years ago, we were told, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to fix this. The Obama administration created this task force on 21st century policing that laid out a whole set of reforms. A lot of big city mayors, police chiefs uh, embraced some or all of these reforms. These reforms all revolve around the idea of procedural justice, procedural justice. This is the idea that if we can get the criminal justice system to function properly, to follow its own procedures, to follow the law, to reduce the level of bias, to be a bit more transparent and accountable, that this will restore the public's trust in those institutions, and then that will allow them to function more effectively. Now this runs in contrast to this historical analysis about the nature of policing. So this procedural reform analysis never interrogates whether or not those legal systems or that sense of order that we're tasking police to produce is actually just. So a procedurally proper, unbiased war on drugs is still fundamentally unjust, even if nobody gets killed, right? even if there's no police brutality, even if there's not the racial disparities, because that legal system was created out of a cynical politics of racism that had nothing to do with public health or public safety. It was about appealing to white voters in the wake of the victories of the civil rights movement to get them to embrace racism in a new form called the war on crime and the war on drugs. And the solution to that is not to give narcotics units anti-bias training. It's to fundamentally reevaluate those legal frameworks that we've given the police to enforce. So this is why things like implicit bias training, body cameras, community policing just aren't gonna work. You know, implicit bias training, which is included in, in Congress's current big George Floyd justice and policing bill, right? Implicit bias training for everyone, even though most departments have already done it and the results are uniformly that it doesn't work. I'm gonna be proposing some new community policing initiatives uh, that will significantly expand funding and training 
for local law enforcement, including up to 50,000 additional body-worn cameras for law enforcement agencies. Uh, and I look forward to working with Congress to make sure that, uh, in addition to what I can do administratively and with resources that we've already got, that we are in a conversation with law enforcement that wants to do the right thing to make sure that they're adequately resourced. One of the cities that was held out as a kind of shining star for its adoption of the kinds of reforms that were in the Obama administration policing task force was actually Minneapolis. They got supplemental funding from the Department of Justice. They got extra trainers. They did police community encounter sessions and they had policy transformation. The officers that were involved in the killing of George Floyd had had implicit bias training, mindfulness training, de-escalation training. They were wearing body cameras. They were operating under a new use of force policy that emphasized sanctity of life. They had had special training that said that they were required to affirmatively intervene if their colleagues were engaged in misconduct. They were operating under an early warning system to create more accountability for officers within the system. And none of it made any difference. None of those officers did any of the things required of that training or those new policies. And the presence of body cameras, not to mention bystanders openly filming them, it just made no difference. Well, look, well, you should check on him. He's not responsive right now. Back off. He's not responsive. Get off. Get off the street. He's not responsive right now. He's not responsive right now. He's not responsive right now, bro. No, bro, look at him. He's not responsive right now, bro. Bro, are you serious? He's going to just let him sit there with that on his neck, bro? We overseeing the overseer, overstepping. Ticking time bomb, loaded weapon. Itchy sidearm, co defendants with no resentment. Uh, illegal chokehold, no discretion. Most excessive. Open season is open ended. Even if we vote to end it like the poll suggested for pre or post election. Not just some lone henchman is so systemic. Pose a threat to every known amendment. For every quote unquote exception, using quotas and confessions. They coerce them bogus evidence to make a charge a sentence stick. For every chauvinist, chauvinistic power fetishist, this precedent that be gets it not to mention who benefits who better than your own brethren to pretend that everything is copacetic pathetic a whole state of emergency and you investigate and educate internally as far as minnesota goes i like to call it the tale of two cities which also makes sense because we're the tale of the twin cities what that means is that the unemployment rate in minnesota is actually really low but that's the unemployment rate for everyone, right? To white people, Asian people, anyone. But the unemployment rate in, for black folks is actually one of the highest in the country. Minneapolis, Minnesota, or like the MSP area, Minneapolis-St. Paul, um, has consistently been one of the five worst places in the US for black people. And it's actually kind of wild because all 10 of those cities, like 90% of those cities are in the Midwest. So the worst being Milwaukee, second worst being uh, Champaign-Urbana and um, Illinois, third being Minneapolis-St. Paul. The Midwest is seen as this haven for progressiveness. We always vote blue, all of these things. When in reality, actually, we have the one of the highest unemployment rates for black folks. Uh, we have the biggest wage inequalities, right? So white folks are making a substantial amount more than black folks are. And that is also because we have 
some of the highest um, numbers of Fortune 500 companies in Minnesota as well, right? So you have Best Buy, you have Target, 3M, all of those um, companies are in Minnesota. Yet we're not seeing that black folks have the same access to income and housing as white people do. And tonight, the major news here, all four former police officers involved have now been charged in his death. In his Derek death. Chauvin, his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. Nearly nine minutes. Charges against him now upgraded from third to second degree murder. Second degree murder. Toe Tao, who stood by, now charged with aiding and abetting murder. And, abetting murder. and the same for Thomas Lane and Jay Alexander King, who authorities say helped hold Floyd down. Hold Floyd down. Hold Floyd down. When we saw the very grotesque murder of George Floyd, we knew that we wanted to give the world a solution to the issue that was happening, which was black people being murdered. And we knew that solution was to actually divest from the police and invest in community-led safety, violence prevention, and other resources. So that's when we put out the call to defund police. And we saw that that spread very, very quickly throughout the world, actually. You could hear the chants from afar, One by one, they came on bike and foot to form a crowd of thousands, all with the same idea, defund the Minneapolis Police Department and put money into other areas. They want to build something new, all in the name of George Floyd and other black men and women who've been killed by police. And the millions and billions and trillions that we waste on the military and the police need to go to our communities. The reason why it spread is because this issue is not an issue that's only located in Minneapolis. This is an issue in Atlanta, right? This is an issue in Boston, everywhere, Dallas. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. Tonight, hundreds of protesters taking the streets once again, calling for the defunding of Chicago police, marching right near one of the Chicago police training facilities. Tonight, a renewed call to defund the Chicago Police Department. Hundreds of demonstrators calling for the millions of dollars the city pours into police to go back into the neighborhoods. And that breaking news, we have protesters now at City Hall. Live pictures here, they're clashing with police. This is a vote is expected today over whether to slash the NYPD budget by a billion dollars. Um, so we knew that th- this very, very simple phrase could be used all across the country for folks on their divestment campaigns as well. Um, And we weren't the first people to call for divest invest, right? Um, In different struggles and different movements, it's called different things. In the EJ movement, it's called just transition. How do we go from a retributive or extractive economy to a generative economy, right? So these things are not new. It was just, it was the right time and the right moment to actually call for defunding the police. We have breaking news out of Minneapolis at this hour where Minneapolis City Council members at a rally about an hour ago have announced their plan to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. Our commitment is to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe and to tell the truth that the Minneapolis Police are not doing that. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. I also don't think that my liberation is tied to the state, uh, meaning that like, I always know that elected officials regardless of where they stand, are going to backtrack. Um, And we kind of knew that going into that. 
So what we have been focusing on now, as far as Black Visions, is how do we actually talk to community, do the political education, the, the specific abolitionist, like liberatory political education, so that folks are able to advocate for what they want. And it's not just the left-wing abolitionists that are calling for defund. It's actually everyone understanding that the only way that we are going to be able to thrive in the society is if everyone is calling for defund of the police. And that requires a lot of political education. So that's the one thing that we're doing right now is like being able to paint a picture and have people co-create a vision of safety that does not include the police. And we also know that that's going to then push elected officials to actually be able to call for a defund and an abolishment of the police because we know that every single citizen is calling for that, right? Another thing that we were kind of successful and then um, unfortunately we were stopped in was the Charter Amendment. The Charter Amendment would have actually removed the Minneapolis Police Department from the Minneapolis Charter, which is basically like the city's constitution, and replace it with Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. That's literally taking away the Minneapolis Police Department. The Minneapolis Charter Commission's job is to research the issue, to hold uh, public hearings, and then make a recommendation whether to approve, reject, or propose changes to the city council's proposal. Well, Randy, it's still very possible that this proposal to dismantle the police department could make it onto the ballot in 2021, but it will not be on the ballot this November. And that's because the Charter Commission today accused the city council of rushing the amendment that they sent to the commission, and the commissioners said that they needed more time to look at it. As an unelected body appointed by a district court judge, the Charter Commission can't block the council proposal forever. But it can legally take another 90 days to review, effectively keeping the council's proposal off the November ballot. Some commissioners worried the public might view that as a delay tactic. And unfortunately, because of the Charter Commission and the way that they were basically a dictatorship, we weren't able to put that on the ballot this year, but that's something that we're going to put on the ballot next year. Another initiative that we really want to lift up and talk about is how do we actually have participatory engagement in political processes in Minneapolis? How do we actually go through and talk about what is participatory budgeting? Because right now what happens is that the mayor, out of his whatever, I don't know if I can swear on this, but out of his ass, he pulls out a budget that says, this is what the, the citizens of Minneapolis actually want, which is not true. And then the uh, city council has the opportunity of either changing it, amending it, vetoing it, or passing it, right? So really the billions of dollars that Minneapolis is spending every year is in the hands of 14 people, right? And they can choose to listen to us if they want. They can choose to listen to the community, but at the end of the day, they don't have to. So what does it actually look like for the citizens who are paying taxes, whose money this is, right? This city's money. What does it look like for them to actually have autonomy over where their money goes? And that's what we want to talk about with participatory budgeting. How do we expand that process so that more people are politically engaged, more people have investment in what goes into the budget every year? Defund the police. You probably seen it written. You might be thinking it's some radicalism, but that's some cataclysm. What happened if we actually did it? But let me backtrack a minute. In Minneapolis, the officers had the implicit bias training body cams. But did that make a difference? Did it? Bystanders, broad days, cameras are filming. Still no saying that he just treated this man as a villain. The fact is, what's happening? What is it? It's a lot of grandstanding, throwing band-aids inside of the Grand Canyon. If that was man-made, like these slave laws we keep, so we mask. 
up and we took it to the streets Cause even pre-pandemic we can't breathe So if I may repeat, defund the police It's so systemic, yeah I know I'm a broken record But gotta go invest in the people, not the oppressor When the killing of Ahmad and Brianna and George happens, right, we are giving people sort of a response mode, how to respond. And in many of those ways, we are focusing on the district attorney or we're focusing on some sort of other local political leader. You know, during the Obama years, we may have been engaging the Justice Department, but now there's no political levers that make sense to demand something from the Justice Department in these situations. And so... In these instances, we respond. And then we're trying to build energy. And then at the same time, we're looking at what we talk about as the pivot, the systemic pivot. So it's respond, build, and pivot. And the systemic pivot relates to all of the sort of structural barriers. And so demanding from Congress, demanding from state legislators, looking at the sort of systemic nature. Some of it is more short-term things that cities can do, some of its longer term things that relate to invest and divest around how we are actually uh, funding policing and how we are funding the future of people's lives and communities. At the same time, we're looking at the barriers to how do we end up facing these challenges time and time again. So if I'm dealing with an issue of gun violence, right, I can't actually win on reducing the number of guns if I don't take on the NRA. And I can't deal with policing if I don't take on the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. And the FOP at every single turn has stood in the way of the type of change that our communities need. After the death of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis, activists across the U.S. took to the streets to demand police reform. But before any proposed policing reforms can actually go into effect, lawmakers and department chiefs would first have to get past police unions. Over the course of decades, police unions have fought to secure generous benefits for rank-and-file officers and helped make the dangerous job of police work more attractive to hundreds of thousands of officers. But when their members come under scrutiny for police brutality and heavy-handed tactics, it's the union that often serves as their first line of defense. John Rappaport is an assistant law professor at the University of Chicago Law School. He specifically studies police unions and officer misconduct. He says most police contracts, including Minneapolis's, include, quote, extraordinary protections. There will be rules like you can't speak to the officer until 48 hours after the incident. You have to speak to the officer last, so you interview all your other witnesses first. In some cases, you have to actually give the officer copies of all the other witness statements, as well as copies of any body cam footage or dash cam footage. Rappaport wanted to measure if unions had an effect on police misconduct. He turned to Florida, where the Supreme Court there allowed sheriff's deputies in all 67 counties to collectively bargain in 2003. So he compared the severe violent misconduct complaints for eight years before that and eight years after unionization. When officers in Florida, which is um, our, our research setting, gained the right to bargain collectively, the rate of serious violent misconduct incidents went up by 40%. And I say that as someone that has sat across the table with the heads of police unions for many years, during the Obama years, I'd go to the White House, I would be sitting there as the head of the Fraternal Order Police would look Brian Stevenson and myself and others across the table and say, all this talk of racial profiling is new. 
not that our demands are too deep or too aspirational, but that the problem doesn't even exist. And so we now have campaigns where we're holding the politicians who say that they are with us to not take police union money. We're holding the corporations that say Black Lives Matter around their donations to police foundations, which many of these police foundations will say that they're funding local programs at the Boys and Girls Club. They'll raise hundreds of thousands of dollars from multiple corporations for this one program that they're putting $50,000 into. And the rest of the money is actually going to things like military grade equipment and other things that we beat back at the city council level or we beat back at the state level only to lose because corporations are putting money into police foundations and the police foundations then in turn do that. When police officers call out with what they call as the blue flu, when they are being held accountable, police foundations will step in and still give them the money. This is what we are sort of dealing with. There's still a lot of work to do to reach the systemic change that we want to see in this country. And of course, from a criminal justice reform perspective, a lot of these changes have to happen at the state and local level. And so there's tons of work to do to bring into fruition the change that we feel like the nation is really calling for or has been calling for for the last several months through various uprisings um, and protests, but we're beginning to see movement. I think we're seeing things play out in local jurisdictions that we couldn't have imagined happening before. In Minnesota, there is an attempt to actually begin to divest resources from the police department and invest. Um, that's gonna take a little bit more time than I think folks originally hoped would work. We saw in Wisconsin where, you know, there wasn't a real attempt to actually make um, real change. There are conversations happening in different localities in Florida right now about pilot programs for different first responder units. And so a lot of these things are happening very piecemeal. They haven't reached that point of maturity where we can like really claim real wins or real systemic change. But I do believe the hopeful, optimistic part of me believes that the baseline framework is there and that we now have a very clear vision, a more clear vision of the type of criminal justice system that we'd like to see in black communities. Emmett Till still haunts us. Talk about Ahmad and Brianna, George and Botham, Alton, Freddie, Mike, Michelle, and Sandra. Human beings, peoples, kids, moms, and fathers, we failed you. Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, I read the braid of phrase and I protect black lives. A child dies, they talk about the young man's size. We get told to stand down, they get told to stand by. Biden, time and hearing promises before they make it to the offices. I got your back, confidence. Harder just take it at face value when the same face didn't place value on your race. Now you in the place where we had to take the waste out Next step is keeping pressure on what the new staff do We could topple statues, we could follow statue We can multitask moves, there's a lot to dismantle We could just demand truth, we commute and cancel Stand with indigenous fam, robbed of their land too Nurture brown and black youth, amplifying avenue Plan through an attack from big biz to grassroots What you think of that, you? Community building, not just twin cities But all of the other siblings Long-term commitment, listen to black women 
Leadership and vision, allyship existing Wages we can live in, really making a difference Sway important decisions, this is people driven Walk with us, do more than talk the talk When the whole world's watching, that's when the war gets fought Well, there it is. Once again, this is Newsbeat's producer and audio editor, Manny Faces. Thank you so much for listening. We'd like to give one last big shout out to our amazing collaborator on this important episode, Color of Change, and all of our guests. And check them out and learn more about their incredible initiatives and how you can become involved at colorofchange.org, blackvisionsmn.org, and alex-vitali.info. Listen to more incredible hip-hop by Silent Night at Silent Night, that's night with a K-N, dot bandcamp.com or bandcoldfuse.com. Now, as always, if you've enjoyed what you've heard or were even perhaps inspired, please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out usnewsbeat.com for an accompanying article for this drop, as well as all of our full episodes featuring incredible guests and original verses from an ever-growing roster of brilliant independent hip-hop artists, as well as bonus content, interviews, and special episodes. You can also find myself, along with my incredible journalist teammates Rashed Mian and Christopher Taworski, on our new weekly live stream show. It's called This Week in Social Justice, and we broadcast online every Friday at 1 p.m. East Coast time. This week, Color of Change's VP and Chief of Campaigns, Arisha Hatch, who you've just heard from in the episode, will be joining us. Swing over to usnewsbeat.com slash Facebook or usnewsbeat.com slash YouTube, wherever you prefer to watch us, so you can sign up and get alerts. All right, everybody, please stay healthy and safe. As always, on behalf of the Newsbeat and Mori Creative Studios teams, we wish you peace and power to the people. Until next time, one love. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News.